the world's most powerful solar telescope, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. We'll climb into the mountains of Southern California to visit a telescope that sits in the middle of a lake and we'll meet the man whose name is now on that great instrument. Bill Nye is back with lots to cover in our brief conversation. The same goes for Bruce Betts, who wishes Curiosity a happy fifth anniversary on Mars in this week's What's Up segment. Speaking of the sun, senior editor Emily Lochtwala is ready to throw a little light on a big event coming later this month. Emily, a little eclipse gift from uh, you to your many readers at planetary.org, where you have posted this blog about a really simple and uh, most important, a very safe way for people to view the great American eclipse coming August 21st. Or any eclipse for that matter. I was motivated to write this post because I've seen so much emphasis on being in a place in the United States where you can see totality and on, you know, buying the right eclipse glasses and equipment and filters and whatnot. And for me, um, I'm more interested in educating as many people as I can. And not everybody's going to be able to travel so that most people will be seeing a partial eclipse. And not everybody will have planned ahead and bought eclipse, safe eclipse sunglasses. So I like this activity because it is incredibly cheap. Most people have the materials, necessary materials on hand, and it's safe for even the youngest children. So tell us about this. Uh, it, it is a pretty famous way of, uh, of viewing, indirectly viewing eclipses. All you need is a pin and a couple of cards. You punch a hole, a very small hole in one of the cards with a pin, and you make yourself a uh, pinhole projector. And what looks like just a dot, uh, an image of the hole on your second card is actually an inverted image of the sun. And so during eclipses, little holes punched in things or holes made by tree leaves overlapping each other, all of those things will become projections of the shape of the sun and they'll all turn into little crescents. It's quite magical. And you have this step-by-step guide for how to create these. It even uh, includes some examples of some wonderful artwork, a little gallery of uh, (laughs) uh, eclipse pinhole projectors. Uh, by some people you know. Yes, well, I'm, you know, I'm a teacher first. And so I want to make sure that this activity is one that can be done by teachers and that it's a good classroom activity. And a good classroom activity is not just to punch one hole in a card. So I thought about what else could we do? And I said, oh, we can make some artwork. So uh, kids can draw um, designs and then punch out holes around the edges of the designs. And their little designs turn into artworks with projected eclipses during the eclipse. It's a really fun activity, good for manual dexterity for little hands really fun to do with kids and teachers. Lots of photos in this blog post and uh, artwork from your daughters, we should say, and their cousins, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) And also a link to a video by our uh, friend and colleague, Kalisa, a junior ranger, but uh, she also shows how to do this pretty graphically. In fact, we're going to end with uh, the close of that video. One more warning about the the safety concerns here. Uh, There have been stories about these uh, cheap uh, cardboard-based glasses that say they're okay okay for viewing eclipses, but apparently there are some out there that are not fully certified. You want to look for that ISO certification or make a pinhole projector, as Emily has suggested, then uh, you uh, will be completely safe because you're not looking directly at the sun. I also want to remind folks that I will be at Southern Illinois University Carbondale for their multi-day celebration of the Great American Eclipse right smack dab in the center of the path of totality. Uh, Emily, where are you going to be? You're going to be at home? I will be at home. Actually, I will be conducting eclipse, partial eclipse viewing for about 500 kids at my local elementary school, hopefully with a lot of help from their teachers. (laughs) Fantastic. Have a great time. Uh, Let's get dark together. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's Emily Lakdawala. You can check out all of the Planetary Society's activities and uh, guidelines for viewing the eclipse wherever you might be at planetary.org slash eclipse. Emily, thanks very much, and happy viewing. Thanks. I look forward to it. Be sure to try this very inexpensive trick on August 21st during the solar eclipse. To learn more about eclipses, go to planetary.org slash eclipse. It's going to be a totally awesome total eclipse. Bill Nye is back. He's the CEO of the Planetary Society. He's been a little busy lately uh, making a TV show, but uh, we're glad you still care about radio. Uh, Radio is the most visual medium, Matt. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's all in your mind. Uh, speaking of which, what's on your mind? There were some great stories in uh, the first up column from Space News on Monday, the 31st of July. Well, there's always something, Matt, but there are a couple things. First of all, you know, good old vinyl cyanide. <laughs> I know, I know. What are you talking about? So astrobiologists have given it deep thought, and they believe if your world is methane, as is Saturn's moon, your cell wall would not be made of lipid proteins, as we might have here on Earth, but our good friend vinyl cyanide. Cyanide? <laughs> With living things? Bill, that's crazy. No, no, these guys, these people, rather, have given it deep thought, and they think it's possible. So... When you detect vinyl cyanide chemically with their telescopes on another planet, that'd be our planet, uh, you think, well, maybe there's something alive there. It really is another just fantastic and intriguing possibility. And it's one more thing, Matt. We guarantee you that what's really going on in the solar system is stranger and more remarkable than you might have thought. I just, I'm saying that right now. What is it, 2017? When life is found elsewhere in our solar system, it will astonish us. Which is one of the things that makes it so thrilling to talk about this kind of stuff with you. As you said, there's much more. I guess NASA has explained why we're not going to put people on the first uh, big space launch system rocket. Well, Matt, as you know, I am not a middle manager at NASA. <laughs> Lucky you. They're telling everybody that it would cost anywhere from 600 to 900 million dollars to put people on the first space launch system. Now, the space launch system has some engines that were used on the space shuttle, so people think it's generally reliable. But would you be the guy to get on the first space launch system? Yeah, go beyond the moon? Uh, maybe. Let's try it first. The whole thing is if you want to do this, U.S. Congress, you have to fund it. NASA's asked to do a great many things, and this is one more thing there. I believe, as an outsider, they're just pointing out, if you want to put people on the first rocket, you got to pay for it. Stand by. It's only 2017. This launch will be scheduled for two and a half years from now. We'll see what happens. Stand by or sit. <laughs> and Last speaking week. of rocket engines. Yeah, yes, rocket engines. Russia, the country of Russia, supplies the legendary RD-180 engine which is used on the mythic Atlas V. What's the importance of the Atlas V, Matt? That's what LightSail 1 launched on, man. A reliable, very good rocket. The Russian company makes these things. They've made them for years. And apparently, they really had great engineers designing the, uh, the bell, the nozzle. And so it's a great engine. But with all the tension that's going on between the United States and Russia right now, one might wonder, are they going to keep making engines? Well... According to the story, they will, for now. And it just shows you that commerce binds people together. When you're doing business with people, you're just much less likely to fight about other stuff. It just It's a life lesson there, doggone it. Face brings out the best in us, Matt. That's a lot to cover. In just a few minutes, Bill, I look forward to uh, doing it again with you soon. You are off to, you told me, the last day of shooting for the second season of Bill Nye Saves the World. Yeah, yeah. So we did 12 more shows. And I got to tell you, we're, they're cooler than the first season because we spread it out more. We didn't shoot two shows a day, which is what we did last time. And the props department, the writers, the camera crew, everybody had more time to prepare, including the host, as, uh, <laughs> as you may hear here. Everything's a little cooler. I'm very proud of these shows. And we are just trying in all 30 minutes, Matt. To save the world. Do you know when this is going to premiere? When when are we going to see the second season? Well, November. November. This is Netflix. You know, these guys, they are diligent with their data. And they're very secretive. They don't tell you exactly what they're doing. But it will air for the holidays. Or air. It will go on the service, as the term goes, as the phrase goes. On the service. We still like uh, air here on this podcast. Uh, whether it's the air of Earth or the air of Titan. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you, Matt. Carry on. He's the CEO of the Planetary Society, Bill Nye, the science and planetary guy. A long-lasting recognition of Phil's contributions to BBSO, to the university, and to the solar community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. 
That little celebration was held in the middle of a lake, which you might think is an odd place to put a telescope. Okay, the Big Bear Solar Observatory is not quite in the middle of Big Bear Lake, but you do have to walk out a few hundred feet along a rocky causeway to reach it. When I was a kid, camping on the shore of that lake, I longed to visit that observatory. Well, in mid-July, I finally got my chance. The telescope under the dome was to be rededicated as the Goody Solar Telescope. Its namesake, Phil Goody, of the New Jersey Institute of Technology, was there with his family and an extended family of colleagues, former students, NJIT officials, and other fans. I was about to learn why naming this instrument after Phil was so appropriate. First, though, I was invited to join Claude Plymate for a tour of the Dome. Claude and his wife, Teresa, both astronomers, live in Big Bear. Claude helped build the Goody and serves as its operator, or as he says, telescope driver. Going all the way up to the top of the Dome... <laughs> That's good. I need the exercise. Yeah, I'm used to that as a kid coming up here and wondering why I was so out of breath after running around with my brothers. Wow. Okay, so this is the, uh, the main dome for the now the Goody Solar Telescope as of this morning. You can see that uh, to get a 1.6 meter telescope, shoehorned into a facility that was originally designed for far, far smaller telescopes, a pair of 10-inch telescopes back in 69. A lot of uh, work had to go into, first of all, making a very compact, very short, off-axis Gregorian Cassegrain telescope, as well as uh, going from the classic hemispherical dome to this 5-8 sphere that we have now, which is a modified radar dome made out of plastic to keep it light. That's about two square meters of collecting area. Solar constant at the Earth's surface, somewhere around a kilowatt per square meter. We're collecting two kilowatts of power. A lot of heat. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of heat. And uh, the primary focus of this telescope, F2.4 as I recall, the primary focus image is about 36 millimeters across, two kilowatts and 36 millimeters. That will melt metal. So the way we deal with it on a solar telescope, you have to have some kind of a heat dump. So at the primary focus of the telescope, we have an aluminum, polished aluminum surface that reflects almost all of that two kilowatts away, but with a small aperture in the center that limits our field to uh, three arc minutes, about a tenth of the diameter of the sun, and a tenth of diameter of the sun, that's about a hundredth the, the power going through. So it's about 20 watts of power going on to the uh, downstream optics. That we can deal with. For the people who are not as into this, when you say off-axis, now we've heard that talked about as recently as when we visited the big telescope at, at McDonald Observatory, the coming uh, giant Magellan telescope, all but one of those mirrors is off-axis. It means that the secondary mirror, the one that the big primaries shine their light up to, it's just it's not in the center uh, above that the primary mirror, right? And that's exactly right, and uh, that's somewhat critical for solar observing, observing in particular, because of course uh, we've all seen uh, nice on-axis telescopes like Hubble telescope images that have those beautiful star images with those beautiful diffraction spikes off of there. In solar observing, we're looking at a very bright but low contrast object. All that diffraction would decrease our contrast. So by going with an off-axis telescope, you remove that diffraction, you increase your contrast. And you said that you can resolve, or not resolve, but you have a field of view that's about, did you say a tenth of the surface of the sun? Yeah, uh, the, the heat stop limits us to three arc minutes. Then further down, we have a second field stop that takes us down to 90 arc seconds. So that's really as much of the sun as we can see, which is more a 20th of the diameter of the sun. But the resolution of what you're able to resolve on the surface of the sun, I heard a pretty amazing figure given in one of the talks we just heard. In the visible wavelength, we are resolving about 50 kilometers across the sun. 93 million miles away. Yes, and that may be the actual 
resolving limit of the sun. Because keep in mind, the sun is not solid, it is nebulous, and so there is some limit to the structure size on the sun. We may be hitting that now in the visible, but that really is, we won't know for sure until the uh, four meter telescope being built by the National Solar Observatory goes into operation in a few years from now, whether maybe there, maybe there is more to see, I won't put my bets on that. But in the infrared, they will be able to hit the same resolving limit we have in the visible out to the infrared. So that's another partnership that is an obvious one between this telescope, which is a pathfinder to the four meter telescope, and on to the science that they'll be doing in the future. And this scope, until that one comes online, this is the largest solar telescope? It is tied for the largest solar telescope. I spent 26 years working with the, uh, the National Solar Observatory at their previous flagship telescope, the McMath-Pierce Solar Telescope on Kip Peak. It also has a 1.6 meter aperture. However, that came online in 1962. Mm-hmm. This one came online in 2009. We've learned a few things about resolving power. You've heard a lot about adaptive optics and now going into multi-conjugate adaptive optics that allows us to really take advantage of the resolving power of these large telescopes here on the Earth's surface. We heard over and over this morning, basically, location, location, location. Why is it so special that this is in the middle of a lake? All your listeners know about the, uh, the great history of the uh, Southern California observatories. Uh, Mount Wilson was built here. Palomar was built here. You get that wonderful laminar flow coming off the, uh, the Pacific coast with our, our uh, standard westerly wind. And these mountain ranges are the uh, first ones to interrupt that, uh, that flow. So most large observatories you'll see in some setup very similar to that. Of course, Mauna Kea, Hawaii, out in the middle of an ocean. The wonderful observatories down in Chile, same thing. Uh, Canary Islands, etc., etc. Well, Caltech, when they built this facility, were looking for a facility or a location that had that good astronomical scene inherently. But we are a solar observatory. We look at the sun during the day. And of course, the sun heats the ground. You get those thermals rising up around your telescope, ruining your daytime scene. The thought was, and turned out to be correct, that the lake will mitigate those thermals, preserving the natural good scene during the daytime. Ironically, although we have this uh, wonderful scene during the day, the opposite should occur at night. The lake should be too warm, creating thermals when the, when the uh, mountain air here cools overnight, destroying our scene. So although Big Bear in general has great astronomical scene, come on up in, uh, on uh, dark moon nights and uh, the local astronomy club here will love to have you up here. But right out here in the lake, it's not the best place to observe at night. So this is a dedicated solar telescope. How long have you been up here doing this? I left the National Solar Observatory in 2011 to take the uh, take a position here. So I've been here now, oh my gosh, six years. How is it living on the mountain and uh, looking at the sun all day? Oh, uh, well, looking at the sun all day is nothing new to me. I've, I've made a career of this. Um, and to be a part of this staff that pulled this coup of uh, being able to develop a world-class, highest-resolution solar telescope in, as you heard, in about five years, in a $25 million budget, about 4% of the DKIS budget, and get that online in five years. That is a group I want to be a part of. 4% of what, is that the budget for the one in Hawaii? Or? Yeah, the, uh, the budget keeps going up on that, the uh, DKIS 4-meter, sorry, the Daniel K. Inouye Solar Telescope going on uh, in Maui, a 4-meter solar telescope, so about three times the size of this one. Hands down, will be the world-leading solar telescope when it comes online. But uh, the number I just heard in the talks this morning is it's up to about a $400 million project, $0.4 billion. Third to scale, third to size, but uh, total budget, Phil quoted $25 million. That's a bargain. And for the time being, anyway, still one of the two largest in the world. 
and hands down the highest resolving power solar telescope. We heard also references to uh, sort of a sense of family here. Has that been your experience? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's a small group. Astronomy is a, is a small, tight-knit community. Solar community, out and out, incestuous. <laughs> it, everybody in this field knows everybody. And you worked with uh, Phil Goody. Yeah, Phil, is the, uh, Phil and Roy Coulter are the ones that recruited me out here. That was so interesting, hearing from this guy who was given so much credit, audacity, tenacity, were all talked about. Is that your judgment of uh, what he was able to accomplish here and how he did it? Oh, absolutely. The idea of, let's face it, a university few of us had even heard of at one, uh, up until fairly recently, New Jersey Institute of Technology deciding to build the world-leading solar telescope and to pull it off as a coup to get that online after Gregor, the 1.5 meter German telescope, had already been started. But to get this started, funded, built, and online before Gregor was online, probably at least a decade after the, the NSO 4 meter project started, to start this one and have it online in five years, that, that's just mind boggling. So this is a pathfinder, a path maker in, in more than one way. Oh, absolutely. It's a pathfinder. Some people refer to this as a baby D-kist. It is uh, optically very similar to the four meter telescope that's going online. So this is a demonstrator for the concept of this as a solar telescope. Obviously, extremely successful. The adaptive optics that we're doing has been a joint project between BBSO and the National Solar Observatory as a pathfinder, of course, for their four meter. Our instrumentation, same thing. A time constantly goes on and everybody builds on the shoulders of others. If we've seen further, it's because we're standing on the shoulders of giants. If you got to quote somebody, quote Isaac Newton, I guess. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I'm keeping you and Teresa, you two, from lunch. Uh, thank you for finally getting Ooh, me up here on, <laughs> under the dome that I've been looking at ever since I was a little kid and wanting to stand right where I am now. Well, we'll have to have you back any time. I've been trying to get you out here for several years as a hardcore uh, planetary radio listener. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you, Claude. It's a pleasure to be here. Claude Plymate, operator of the Goody Solar Telescope at the Big Bear Solar Observatory. When we return, we'll meet Phil Goody and a couple of his colleagues. This is Planetary Radio. Hey, Planetary Radio listeners. The Planetary Society now has an official online store. We've teamed up with Chop Shop, known for their space mission posters, to bring you space-inspired art and merchandise. You can find exclusive Planetary Society t-shirts, posters, and more. Visit planetly slash space shop to learn more. That's planet.ly forward slash space shop. Hi, I'm Kalisa with the Planetary Society. We've joined with the U.S. National Park Service to make sure everyone is ready for the 2017 North American Total Solar Eclipse. Together, we've created the new Junior Ranger Eclipse Explorer Activity Book. It helps kids learn about the science, history, and fun of eclipses. Call your nearest national park and ask if they have the Eclipse Explorer book, or you can download it from mps.gov kids or at planetary.org eclipse. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan, taking you back up to the Big Bear Solar Observatory in California's San Bernardino Mountains. I've been invited to join a celebration of astronomer, astrophysicist, and helioseismologist Phil Goody. Don't worry, Phil himself will soon tell us what a helioseismologist is. First, though, a couple of minutes with two of Phil's colleagues at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, owner and operator of the BBSO, and the university for which Phil took on the upgrade of the observatory. Fadi Deek is NJIT's provost and executive vice president. Professor of Physics Andrew Girard directs the Center for Solar Terrestrial Research, which oversees the observatory and was founded by Phil. We really study the interaction between the sun and the earth. So when the sun puts out a solar flare or a coronal mass ejection, creates a space weather event, we have 
people at the center that study that process and the physics behind it and trying to forecast it. But we also, on the other end, look at how those events impact the Earth, impact the Earth's uh, atmosphere, impact the Earth's technological structure, impact the Earth's biological systems. So we try to cover really from the surface of the sun right to the surface of the Earth and looking at all of the aspects really of what's being known today as, as space weather. Now, personally, I'm on the Earth side of the, uh, of the equation, whereas, for example, the folks associated with BBSO or Owens Valley Solar Array are more on the solar side, uh, looking at the generators of what uh, uh, eventually hits the Earth. This has become a pretty, if you'll pardon the pun, hot topic in recent uh, years, solar weather, space weather, yeah. because it makes a big difference to us down here. Yeah, you bet. There's practical reasons. There's, there's actually political reasons. Uh, we just passed through the last solar max, so there was a buildup, certainly, of infrastructure within the United States and around the world for doing science, doing the physics, doing the forecasting of space weather during this past solar max. And as we're in the declining stage now of the solar cycle, uh, this is where we typically have these large coronal mass ejections. There was one that just hit us, for example, yesterday um, that created a, a fairly, it wasn't a massive storm, but it was enough that, yeah, it was registered by spacecraft and we saw practical effects of it. HF communication, for example, was disruption. High frequency. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. A couple of years ago, through executive orders, through some uh, legislation that was in introduced to the Congress, the role of space weather and the uh, delineation of space weather as a national priority of, of something that the U.S. itself has not really invested enough time and, and, and concern about really started getting pushed to the forefront. And there were a number of different uh, national uh, space weather action plans and strategic directions that were enacted that are now just now uh, here in 2017 coming to fruition. The center is really right on the, on the precipice of, of leading those efforts. We are one of the few groups in the country, if, if not the world, that can look at everything from right the surface of the sun right to the surface of the earth and put the whole system together. For us and for many other universities, one can look back and point to a few milestones, and this is one milestone for us, specifically in that it enabled NGIT to expand beyond its regional and national scope NGIT then became a global university. Not only is our campus in Newark, but also we have a facility here, the Big Bear Solar Observatory. Phil Goody started all that, mm-hmm. and, and he himself today acknowledged that it will continue because of those that he has mentored. Andy just gave him credit for this. We've heard of, uh, of others that went through the grinds with, with Phil, the current leader of BBSO, in fact, was a postdoc student of Phil and many, many, many more who are leaders in their own rights in those fields internationally. Anything to add to that, Andy? No, not at all. I think Fadi has it completely right. I mean, Phil started this whole thing, and again, for a lot of reasons, including Phil's ability to, uh, sounds like I'm tooting my horn here, but attra- you know, bringing in, recruiting very talented faculty. I'll agree with that. I'll we, agree with we, that. We, we were able to continue his legacy. <laughs> I'll add that I, too, interviewed Andy and yeah. made him the offer as, as the dean of that college at the time. <laughs> Nice work. Gentlemen, I'm glad you made it out here for this little uh, celebration on the West Coast. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Fadi Deek and Andrew Girard of the New Jersey Institute of Technology. The Big Bear Solar Observatory belonged to the California Institute of Technology for many years. When NJIT took over, it was Phil Goody who saw the potential for creating our planet's most powerful solar telescope. Phil would become NJIT Distinguished Research Professor of Physics, founder of the Center for Solar Terrestrial Research, director of the BBSO, and leader of the tremendous effort to replace its telescope. Now this man, who started as a theoretical nuclear physicist, had seen his name given to that telescope. Uh, Hale, Keck, Hubble, now the goody. That's a pretty nice community to be part of, to have a telescope facility named after you. It's a real honor. It's a real honor. I'm in good company. So many people had so many nice things to say about you today, and they used a lot of words like tenacity, audacity, because apparently that's what it took once NJIT took over this facility and to replace the telescope there with this amazing instrument that I just got to climb up into the dome and and take a look at. Quite an accomplishment. I I always thought about myself as being tenacious. That's for sure. Audacious, that's a new one for me, but (laughs) but, uh, tenacious, yes. Talk about how you came to be 
in charge at this facility and had the chance to achieve what's, what's happened here? Well, I had this observing program. I knew I needed one because when I started doing astrophysics, I didn't have a background in astronomy, and I was doing the- theoretical work, which you can do in sort of a narrow way, but I had to learn some astrophysics, and the best way to do that is to have an observing program. It forces you to get the background that you needed, and I came to really like observational astronomy, and I had an observing program at Sacramento Peak Observatory. The opportunity came to transfer Big Bear Solar Observatory to NJIT, and I I worked hard to make it happen. It gave me the opportunity to do some things that I thought I could do without any background in doing them, but... You described yourself as a helioseismologist, which was not a term I'd heard before. Well, that's a field that started in the late 70s, and that, that's the study of uh, the inside of the sun using the oscillations of the sun. It's analogous to the study of the inside of the Earth using earthquake data to probe the uh, inside of the Earth, except that the sunquakes are continuous and enable a seismic sounding of the interior of, of our star. How much better do we understand our star, the one that's easiest for uh, us to study, in the time not just that this telescope has been operating, but, oh, I don't know, in the last 30 or 40 years as we've been studying the sun? We understand how the uh, sun rotates. It rotates on a single axis, not on multiple axes like people had postulated. We understand that there's not a, a deeply buried, inclined magnetic field like people postulated. We understand how the magnetic field comes from the base of the convection zone to the surface. There are things that we don't understand very so well about the solar cycle, but we, we do understand uh, how small the change is in the uh, size of the sun through the solar cycle and, and through time. We understand how small the change is in the temperature of the surface of the sun through the solar cycle. So uh, we've learned a lot. You were a nuclear physicist, a theorist. Suddenly you're an observational astronomer and also helping to create a new facility. Somebody said that they they think you know every screw in that telescope. I'm not sure I know every screw in the telescope, but I do know the telescope pretty well. It wasn't fully inconsistent with my background. Even when I was doing theoretical nuclear physics, I still spent a good deal of my effort explaining experimental data. So when I started doing astrophysics, it was theoretical, but I had an observational program, and the observational program grew. You have an observational program, you have to learn instrumentation. And then the instrumentation became so fantastically interesting. Things like adaptive optics are such a curiosity. You know, 40 years ago, these technologies didn't exist. So the field and the opportunities were wide open. No big new telescope had been built in the United States for observing the sun in a generation, but the technology certainly enabled it. And so it was a matter of figuring out how to bring the technologies together, raise the money, and get the basic design to uh, do it. And, and in the basic design, you have to decide what technology risk you want to take. The technology risks seem fairly obvious. Make it off-axis because that way you have nothing in the uh, path that obscures what you're trying to look at because the sun is a low contrast object, then how big does it have to be? Well, it has to be at least a meter and a half because that's what size you need to resolve the basic structures on the surface of the sun. All that's easy to say, but as people say, the devil's in the details, and then you have all kinds of interesting adventures uh, dealing with the devil. There wasn't a lot of experience around the world in creating a mirror that would basically focus, as you said, off-axis. Instead of having the secondary mirror 
directly above the, the primary mirror. In, in fact, uh, our uh, primary mirror was at the time the largest off-axis mirror that had ever been figured. That helped us in getting support from the Mirror Lab at the University of Arizona. On the other hand, it presented technological challenges for everybody involved. That made it interesting, that made it uh, difficult, but everybody learned a lot, and you do something that nobody else has has done, and you get something that's uh, all the more valuable from it. We've talked about another telescope that is coming together, the Giant Magellan uh, Telescope. Actually, they've started construction down in Chile, which uses a whole bunch of off-axis mirrors, also figured at that University of Arizona Mirror Lab. Did they get better at doing that because they had your mirror to work with first? Well, in fact, uh, our mirror was the prototype. It's not an accident that our piece of glass was actually 1.7 meters, and if you multiply that by five, it's 8.4 meters, which is the exact size of each of their off-axis segments. And so ours was the prototype. Ours was the proof of concept that an 8.4 off-axis piece of glass could be figured. So I hope they gave you a deal. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) They had funding from the Air Force, so our argument to them was, look, you're going to polish a piece of borosilicate and put it in a closet. (laughs) Why not polish a piece of of, uh, zero-dur and you can claim credit, rightfully so, that from your mirror lab came the world's largest and most powerful solar telescope. They could and they did. You said you knew that you needed a mirror of this size, or larger, I suppose, to resolve the features of the sun down to what? What, what are you able to resolve to? And, and what kind of features are we talking about? 50 kilometers. Basically, on the surface of the sun, the photon mean-free path is about uh, 100 kilometers. So if you can resolve 50 kilometers, then you can resolve the basic dynamics. There were a lot of challenges along the way. You told an interesting story about the dome when uh, it was in place, but not really, I mean, not only was it not turning, but it wasn't sealed. Yeah, that was an interesting Christmas Eve (laughs) with uh, a storm that uh, brought in sleet, basically horizontal to the lake, blew off the, the tarp that was covering the dome, and it was sleeting inside the dome, and so shoving towels and everything we could think of to uh, keep the inside as dry as possible, and then after that, making little uh, dikes and things to guide the water down the stairs and out the front door. And then there were a series of problems after that to make the dome mobile. You know, our guys are really clever, and they figure out how to solve each problem as it comes up. And that's what really smart people are, are good for. You you give them a problem and it's, well, it's trivial to say that it's an opportunity. I don't think they think of it as an opportunity, but it's an obstacle to overcome and they'll figure out how to do it. This reminds me of uh, some advice you gave to your grandson who was in the audience today about what he should do to be successful in life. Find good, really smart people to work with They'll make the journey much more enjoyable for you. And speaking of smart people, you had a whole bunch of people who uh, you were responsible for uh, who are now all across this field of heliophysics, of of, uh, examining and studying the sun. Uh, Yeah, I'm really proud of the people who have uh, passed through here from uh, Thomas Rimler, who's in charge of the project to build the most expensive telescope to date. Enrique Palais, who's in charge of the scientific program at the Institute of Astrophysics in in the Canaries, the most important scientific astrophysical institution in Spain. A dozen other people, Guy Hu, uh, Jungchul Che from Seoul National University, leading solar physics efforts in South Korea. Peter Gallagher, who's a professor at uh, Trinity University in Dublin, producing many outstanding PhD students and others. 
So you have a lot more to your legacy than this mighty telescope out here under the dome. Yes, and I'm I'm very proud of the people that I've helped train. I'm very proud of their success and proud of the fact that telescopes work. And also, all these people who said that this couldn't be done or Goody couldn't do this, and it's true. It, it makes me feel a little better that I did it and, and uh, they said he couldn't do it. What do you hope will be the future for this facility, the, the Goody Solar Telescope, as we enter into a new era with this big new telescope in Hawaii, the DKIST, coming online? In the short run, there's a, a bright future for at least another decade with uh, what's called multi-conjugate adaptive optics, and that means that we'll be able to correct uh, the atmospheric distortion over a wide field, and there are dynamical events that occur over a wide field in the sun, and they occur on a sub-second scale. We can't really probe those now. They are at the heart of the dynamics that happen on the sun, and so we will be able to probe those with the Goody Solar Telescope, and it will be the only instrument that can do that for some time to come. Also, the telescope has a good future in collaboration with NASA because we will be able to observe in campaigns day after day after day, looking at the same things, following the same targets that NASA follows. The uh, four-meter telescope in Hawaii will be committed to three days looking at this, three days Mm -hmm. looking at that, Uh, it it will have a different mission. I see our 1.6-meter telescope as having a a bright future for many years to come. I'm keeping you from a lot of people who are here to honor and celebrate with you, but I've got to ask you one other question I almost forgot. There is, under a small dome here, next to the big one, uh, there are really two telescopes, but the one I want to ask you about is for studying earth shine. Tell us what, what you're doing with that. Well, we've been doing measuring the Earth's shine for uh, 20 years. You probably have noticed, if you look at a quarter moon, you can see the uh, three quarters of the moon in this sort of dim light. That's sunlight that's reflected from the day side of the Earth to the dark of the moon and then back to the nighttime observer. It was first explained in 1510 by Leonardo da Vinci, Hmm. and it gives you an instantaneous measure of the large-scale reflectance of the Earth. The reflectance of the Earth is a fundamental parameter of Earth's climate and Earth's climate change. After 20 years, we can see that the change in the Earth's reflectance or albedo is fairly small and probably not significant for climate change. That's that's really an important thing to know. Also, we've been looking at the spectrum of, of the Earth shine. Uh, there's this considerable effort to try to understand uh, and find Earth-like planets around other stars. What's the signature of these uh, Earth-like planets? You're not going to see some round object. What you're going to see is a spectrum. And what's the spectrum? The spectral signature is going to be a signature of greenery. If we could see just a little bit more into the red, plants would look red. It's called the red edge. Mm. So we tried to find the red edge by looking at the moon. In particular, what we wanted to see is if the sun, when the sun rises over the Amazon, could we discover Amazonia? And in fact, we could. So it tells you that there's a good opportunity for discovering Earth-like planets around other stars, and this helps provide limits on on that. So it's an interesting project. Absolutely fascinating. Looking to the moon to look back to the Earth, to look out to other worlds that might have life. Yes, that's that's right. Thank you so much, Phil, for taking a few minutes, and congratulations on, on what has happened here today, this renaming of what is now the Goody Solar Telescope. Well, thank you very much. It's been a good day for the name Goody. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, uh, welcoming you back to the show after our uh, live show that we did at KPCC, uh, Southern California Public Radio. So I'm not live? 
<laughs> you're alive. Oh, I hope that'll God. do. Oh, that's good. Okay. No, that's that's really good. I'm good with that. Tell us, what's alive in the sky? A couple special things coming up. The yearly Perseid meteor shower peaks August 12th and 13th with increased activity that happens several days before and after. However, viewing will be somewhat hampered by a gibbous moon, but you can still catch some bright meteors. If in a dark sky without that pesky moon, you get 60 to 100 meteors per hour, uh, that number will be reduced, but still probably quite worth going out and hanging out. And then, of course, there's an eclipse. Did you know that, Matt? Uh, you're joking. How yes, could I, I have missed this? <laughs> I know. Uh, August 21st, the Great North American Eclipse, a total solar eclipse, will cross the United States from Oregon to South Carolina. A partial eclipse will be visible from North America, Northern South America, and the western edge of Europe. Learn more planetary.org slash eclipse. Also, our website planetary.org under blogs. Under my blogs, you can find an overview of the eclipse and uh, other eclipses. Yeah, almost everything you wanted to know about eclipses in general. All right, we moved on to this week in space history. It was a big week for recent Mars exploration. Ten years ago, the Phoenix uh, mission launched, carrying, among other things, the Planetary Society's Visions of Mars, mini-DVD with uh, art and literature and greetings from famous people uh, to future explorers on Mars. And if you know where to look, you can see uh, that very DVD with the, with Martian dirt piled up all over it because of sloppy work by the uh, by the scoop on Phoenix. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> and then 2012, five years ago, hard to believe it's five years. Curiosity landed on Mars. Wow, and going strong in spite of a few holes in the wheels. We move on to random spacecraft. <laughs> That was kind of cute. Oh, thank you. So the first color picture from the surface of Mars from Viking 1 was processed quickly and released within hours with a blue sky. Further calibration showed the image actually should have had a reddish sky and the image was re-released. I was a punk standing at JPL with hundreds of other people because I kind of not exactly snuck in, but I got in. And that first image came out. I remember saying to people, a blue sky. Mars has blue skies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what a lot of people said, I think. And then, um, oops. Yeah, pink is nice, too. <laughs> and it's and it's different. It's charming in its own different kind of a way. Yeah, I kind of prefer it now. <laughs> All right, we move on to the trivia contest. I asked you, by mass, what is the fourth most common element in the sun? How do we do, Matt? A terrific response. I thought this one would, you know, be held back a little bit, but a lot of people either knew or looked it up. And we got an entry from Robert Sartain of Wallingford, Pennsylvania, that was chosen by random.org as our winner. He says carbon is the fourth most, uh, what, present element in the, in the sun. That is correct. After the very dominant hydrogen, uh, quite a bit of helium, a little bit of oxygen, and then a little bit of carbon. And not much of anything else, huh? No, it, it's all downhill from there. I mean, there's other stuff mixed in. Robert Sartain, congratulations. You are the big winner of a uh, the brand new Chop Shop Planetary Radio t-shirt. I am wearing it at this moment. Mine finally came. Everybody <laughs> Dang <can> it. <laughs> I've been we telling had... everyone not to let you have it. We had people lit up in arms. They were going to march on Chop Shop and the Planetary Society, but, but, but I assured them that the shirt was on its way, and I am a proud wearer of it now. And uh, we're going to give one away again in this uh, new contest that you're going to name in a moment, along with the 200-point itelescope.net account, the worldwide nonprofit network of telescopes that Robert will now be able to use to uh, observe the universe, and a cheap but effective pair of Bill Nye Eclipse glasses. Of course, we got some other entertaining stuff. Clem Unger, who also responded with the fourth most common element in the sun, he said that somehow that makes diamonds seem a lot less special to him. Uh, Clem, if you've, you know, <laughs> you don't care about them anymore, you send them my way. It's okay. I'll, I'll take them off your hands. 
Kendra. Diamonds are a radio host's best friend. That's what they say. <laughs> you got it. Kendra Mullison of Polson, Montana. She says she's proud to be carbon-based, and she's just grateful she's not one of those arsenic-based life forms that uh, people thought they found a while back. Yeah, how lucky. <laughs> Mel Powell, who we hear from a lot. Uh, he says, you know, if you separated the carbon out and combined it with pasta inside Earth's magnetic field, would you get spaghetti carbon aura? <laughs> no. <laughs> I like that. I thought it was a pretty good pun. And count them, two poems this week. Well, sort of a limerick from Nathan Hunter in Portland, Oregon first. Yo-ho, it's hot. The sun is not a place where we could live. But here on Earth, there'd be no life without the light it gives. <laughs> Aww. Thank you, Nathan. Finally, Dave Fairchild, the Poet Laureate of Planetary Radio. The sun is made of hydrogen and helium, of course, with oxygen the next in line. But Bruce asks, what is fourth? The element of graphite. It's the stuff of diamonds made. It's carbon, just another proof of star stuff we are made. Oh. So that completes it. We got, you know, tons of other great entries. Uh, I, I could go on, but uh, we've got other things to do, including the new contest. All right. I'm going to turn our focus uh, over the next coming weeks to solar eclipses, not surprisingly. So with a uh, solar eclipse, just before totality, the sun is blocked, except for sunlight streaming through lunar valleys along the limb. Who are these brief, bright beads of light named after? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And apparently my dog wants to know, <laughs> yeah. right? Is that one of your dogs raising his paw to answer the question? It is. He's actually thumping his tail to say, hey, I know, I know. <laughs> and now he lay back down. So his, his excitement was brief but passionate. I am so hoping to see those beads, which uh, will be named when we answer this contest. How do people enter, did you say? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until the 9th, that would be Wednesday, August 9th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to enter this one and get that same terrific uh, package of prizes. And we're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, think about Max and other dogs and the weird noises they make. Hey, Max. Oh. Nobody eclipses Max. That's Bruce Betts, though, his sort of master. He's also the director of science and technology for the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Oh. <laughs> That's not Max. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its sunny members. Daniel Gunn is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies. Clear skies.